Okay, sorry for the delay. Thank you everybody for coming and tuning in. We continue tonight our class on the Paitanim, or those who wrote piyut, of poetry of liturgical nature. And we worked our way through the classical period of piyut, meaning the early Paitanim from Eretz Yisrael, uh, the, the classical period of poets such as Yanai and Kalir. And then we moved a little forward into the late Eastern uh, post-classical period with uh, writers such as Sadia Gaon and Rabbi Shmuel Hashlishi. And now we're moving a little further into writers who bridge the gap between the post-classical period and the more modern, so to speak, periods of poetry, of, of piyut. And much of this, um, so to give you an, a sense of date of what we're talking about, the late classical period is effectively from roughly the, it stretches from the end of the 8th century all the way to the end of the 10th century. However, in this post-classical period, and in some contexts you could call it the late Eastern period, there was a few poets who began to write poetry in the spirit of the older Paitanim, the earlier Paitanim from Eretz Yisrael, yet they were clearly bringing a, and in Yiddish you would call it a frischkeit, like a freshness, to the piyut that would be important for later generations, which would bring much more innovation into the world of piyut. There we go. Now, in the Spanish world, this uh, evolution into the more modern type of Spanish uh, piyut is pretty well known. Uh, anybody looking at the difference between an Ashkenaz uh, machzor for Rosh Hashanah and a Sfaradi machzor for Rosh Hashanah will notice that the, 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 the piyut styles are very different. For the Ashkenazim, typically will read piyutim from the early Paitanim, like Elazar HaKalir, Yanai, Rishimur Ben Migas, and others. While the Sfaradim, today we're going to read uh, from Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, from Shlomo uh, Ibn Gabirol. It's a completely different style of poetry, and the Spanish later style of poetry from the 11th century, 12th century, that style was its own new new artistic form, which was borrowed very much from the earlier Arabic uh, meters and the Arabic styles. But before any of that happened, there was a transition period. Last week we looked at Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur, one of the great Tamidi Chachamim who came from Spain and then eventually moved to Cairo. He himself was a prolific Paitan and wrote some beautiful piyutim but much more with the older style. And he was very reticent, as far as we can see, to use the newer, uh, the, the newer Arabic meters and the newer Arabic styles. And so he represented a good um, example of a bridge between the older piyut styles and what would be a more modern piyut style that came later. Now, we could have continued on the Iberian Peninsula with the, the Spanish poetry, the proper Spanish poetry of Rabbi Shmuel Hanagid and um, Rabbi Moshe Ben Ezra, Rabbi Huda Halevi, etc. 
However, if we're going to follow, I wanted to discuss Paitanim in the order of the styles of Piyut. I didn't want to simply follow a single region at a time. There's different ways you could do it. You could, you could study Piyut by studying different types of Piyut. Take a Kedushta, a Yotzer, um, a Selicha, etc. Or you could study Piyut by region, or you could study Piyut by personalities. So I chose to discuss poet after poet by personalities because I feel that the biographical, um, because I feel like the biographical lean just makes things a lot more interesting. So tonight, I want to follow the biography of the poets of Southern Italy. And the reason I want to go to Southern Italy tonight is because Southern Italy in the 9th and 10th centuries was the home of some really uh, amazing Paitanim who wrote Piutim, that affected Ashkenazi Jewry until today. And those piyutim, although they were not written in Eretz Yisrael like the earlier Paitanim, and although they were written in a simpler, uh, different style, they represent a very nice bridge to the later types of Italian and the later types of German piyutim that were written hundreds and hundreds of years after the um, the after the early Eretz Yisrael school. We could call this the, uh, you know, the Franco-German school, the Italian school, but there was a later era of Piut in Italy and in Franco-Germany, which had its birthplace, so to speak, in Southern Italy, and as we'll see later, as in Northern Italy as well. So why are we going to go to the south of Italy? So that requires some, a little bit of history. It is fairly well known that when Titus destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, he brought back with him to Rome many Jewish slaves as almost as like a, a military show of force. This was popular in those times. And we know that Jews were living in Italy, therefore, since the first century. Besides the, the anecdotes we have in the Gemara of Tanaim and Amoraim, uh, sorry, of Tanaim, and other Jewish dignitaries visiting Rome, we know for sure that there was, even there's, there's Gemarot about this, there, that there were Jewish communities living in Rome and living around Italy in the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. Now, as the, from the first century, almost until the eighth century, we could almost speak of that era as a dark ages for Italian Jewry, because we have very little to no record of what types of Jews live there and why. The Roman Empire eventually became Christian and it made it complicated for the Jewish people to, uh, what's the word, live there with autonomy and to live there with religious freedom. So when the Roman Empire collapsed, though at least the Western Roman Empire collapsed in the fourth century, we have a, um, an occurrence where the Jews that lived in Italy began, because of the complications and the, the chaos of what was happening in Italy, uh, or at least in the Western Roman Empire, it seems that many of the Jews who lived during that time migrated down to the south for more stability, because Rome itself was not stable at the time, and there was different uh, powers trying to gain control of the north of Italy. So we, from what we can see, it seems that most of Jewry, 
started to migrate south. Most of the Jewry in Italy began to migrate south to where it was a little bit more politically stable. We find uh, they found gravestones in Italy of Jewish people. And if you go through the fourth, fifth, sixth century, most of those gravestones are written in Greek, which indicates that the Jews who lived in Italy were not really permanent Jews. They were not really, uh, it wasn't a thriving religious Jewish community. These were Jews who were there for business, Jews who were, were there for, for multitude of reasons, but there was no deeply religious entrenched community throughout Italy. It is only till the 7th and 8th centuries when they began finding tombstones written in Hebrew, which indicates that the, the uh, what's the word, the communities in Italy began to become more religious and began to become more central and to consolidate themselves into cities. And if you, if you remember last week, we spoke about the story of the four captives, right? How there were four, four Jewish rabbis who left from Bari, which is one of the, the coastal cities of Italy, and they went on a trip and they were captured by a, by a captain, Ibn Rumahis. If you remember last week, we spoke about that story. One of the, the things that that story really brings to light is that Italy, just because of its geographic location, was a very, very important bridge from the east to the west. The Jews who lived um, in Eretz Israel and the Jews who lived in Egypt, so to speak, if they were trying to move west, or if Jews in the west, in, in Western Europe, were trying to move or get information to the east, Italy and southern Italy in particular, especially uh, also an island like Sicily, was a very important bridge for that kind of communication. In the time of the Geonim, um, there was... A, there was an era where, where communication between Jews in the, Western, in, the, in, in the Western side of the world had more difficulty reaching the, um, if they wanted to send the Shelah Tshuvah to, to Bavel, they had difficulty reaching them because they were under different empires. But eventually the Byzantine Empire took over more areas of land, and then the Muslim empires took over enough areas of land that it became easier for communication to move from east to west. In, uh, throughout the Jewish world. The, the, it's, that's a little bit complicated because I'm, I'm glossing over a couple of centuries. But my point is, the south of, of Italy was an important bridge for communication and an important bridge for Jewish life. And if you... Um, what's a good way to put this? If you remember, I think it was... Yeah, we must have spoken about this last week or two weeks ago. The... Yeshivot, the yeshivot in the time of the Geonim were split into two major centers. You had the yeshivot in Babel, right? Had the the um, the Geone Babel, so to speak, who had their own lineage of great rabbis. Then you had the Geonim, so to speak, the great rabbis of Eretz Yisrael, and they had their own yeshivot in Tiberia and in other places. Now, the centers of, Rosh, of yeshivot in Eretz Yisrael controlled different jurisdictions and the yeshivot in Bavel controlled different jurisdictions. So if it came to appointing judges or um, appointing rabbis of certain communities, uh, poskening, uh, if it came to matters of dispute, different yeshivot, th those two different centers, the Babylonian center and the center in Eretz Yisrael controlled different provinces. Now, the center in Eretz Yisrael, due to its proximity in Italy and being under the same empire, 
they both, uh, Italy was a very important reshut underneath the Eretz Yisrael yeshivot. So anybody who lived in Cairo, uh, who lived in Italy, who lived in Lebanon, they were under one of the jurisdictions of the Eretz Yisrael yeshivot, and they were very, very close with the people in Egypt, and they were close with all the people in Eretz Yisrael. They all kept this sim they all kept similar minhagim and similar uh, uh, similar nuschaot uh, in tefillah, and they were all very, very close. Now there was communication between some of the Chachamim and with Bavel, as we're going to soon see. But this is some of the general history of those centers of yeshiva. And many of the, the great rabbis who, live in, who lived in Italy were also trained in Eretz Yisrael. Sometimes they would get the, the title aluf or chaver, which would mean like the chief or the, uh, the rabbi, in, who, who, it's an official title from those yeshivot. Like the Reish Kala in, in Bavel, they had the name aluf or, or chaver in the yeshivot of Eretz Yisrael. They also had the, the, the gaon or shishiva, the shlishi and the revi'i. Different, different titles for the different, uh, digni the different rabbis in the yeshiva. Okay, so now, to find these poets, we have to go to the 9th and 10th century in southern Italy. So in the 9th and 10th century, there was a constant flux, a constant battle between the Christian empires, right? Like the Byzantine Empire, who was controlling the province of Lombarda, of, of, of Lombarda and of Apulia, and you had the, the Muslims who were moving north from Africa, and they were pushing, they eventually pushed through Sicily, they, then they used Sicily as a base, and they tried to push through southern Italy to go north and north and north. And then the Christians finally reunited and pushed them all the way back. So between, from the 9th century to the 10th century, you have a lot of uh, battles and a lot of uh, territorial fights between the Christians and the infidel Muslims, or between the Muslims and the infidel Christians, depending on really what side of the coin you're on. The Jews, however, always, because there were so few of them, relatively speaking, they always occupied a kind of complicated corner of, of this history. Overall, the Muslims were better for the Jews than the Christians, but Jews always fare better with a Reichstadt, with a, with, a, with a government that has a law of land. Regardless of whether they're oppressive or not, like the Christians were, the Jews quickly find their ways to, to find their place inside a system, and, and, they, and, and they find a way to thrive. There were many oppressive Byzantine religious rulers, especially Basile I, who is, as we'll see, cursed out pretty soon. But the, the overall... Uh, existence of the Jews in southern Italy was far from simple. There was constantly a flux back and forth between the Muslims and the Christians, and the Jews always found themselves at the blunt end of either sword. It was never a fun time in those centuries. However, relative, they did move there for the stability because, relatively speaking, for many, many decades at a time, they would be ruled by one government or the other. Now, by the end of the 10th century, Already there were too many decrees that were negative, like forced baptism and riots, that you had city by city eventually started to, to, uh, to empty out. You had the city of Bari, the city of Oria, the city of Otranto, you had the city of uh, Venosa. Eventually many of these cities started to empty out by the 10th and 11th century because Jewish life there became untenable due to all the all the oppression from the Christians who eventually wrestled control of that, of that section. Now, despite all that chaos, no, I wouldn't call it chaos, but this, despite all of that and all of the, the, the complications of the Jews living in Italy, ironically, 
the very country which destroyed the Beit HaMikdash became the center of some of the greatest yeshivot in Jewish history. Rabbeinu Tam was known as saying, he used to make a pun on the Pasuk, Rabbeinu Tam used to say, that, the, that from Bari, Torah shall go forth, and the word of Hashem shall go forth from Otranto. Meaning Rabbeinu Tam, who lived almost 200 years later, was describing how many Chachamim came out of southern Italy from the Apulian region, and how the, the great sages of those regions really affected the Franco-German Chachamim, who were, again, originally Italian, and most of their Mbisorah came from those giants in southern Italy. Now, our knowledge of that period, of the, for the, our knowledge of the, of the period between the 1st and 7th or 8th centuries is extremely, extremely limited. It would be appropriate to call it a Dark Ages. But from the 7th and 8th century onward, would have been a Dark Ages if it weren't for a certain document that was discovered in the library of Toledo. Uh, I think it's in the Cathedral Library. And that document was called the Megillat Achimats. And this is an absolutely fascinating document. It was actually written, uh, the copy is called it Sefer Hayuchsin, but it's also known as the Megillat Achimats. And this is a scroll, so to speak, written by a certain man named Achimats, an Italian Jew, living in, uh, in Capua, in north, more northern Italy, in the 11th century, roughly the year 1054. And his purpose of writing this scroll was really to extol the virtues of his, of his family. His family was known as the Achimats family, and he wanted to speak about all the great stories of the giants of his family and the rabbis and the miracle stories and the, the genealogy. And so he wrote a poem uh, really a story in, in, in rhymed prose that tells the story of his family. And this poem gives us volumes of information about all of the great poets of Italy that we never had before. When it was discovered in the, I think this was in the, the early um, 20th century, when it was discovered by Neubauer, the, the amount of information that we gathered about the southern Italian poets grew immensely, and a lot of dots were connected that were never previously known. So many of these Paitanim that were mentioned, um, sorry, that we still say today, that the Ashkenazim still say today in the Machsor for Rosh Hashanah and the Machsor for, for Yom Kippur, there was finally light shed on them thanks to this Megillat Achimatz. Now, it's really, really worth a read if, um, if any of you have, have time, uh, Binyamin Klar, uh, was a researcher who published in 1944, incredibly, during World War II, he went through all the work to publish a, a Megillat Achimatz, which you can find in, on, on Hebrew books. And uh, it, it's accompanied by poems in the back that were, that were uh, appended, to, appended to, the, to the scroll of Achimatz. And he did a tremendous amount of brilliant research and, and, um, and work on the Megillat Achimatz. And it's just absolutely incredible to see somebody doing this during during the war, studying Jewish history while, while, while Jews were burning is just really something inspiring. And then finally, if you, uh, 20 years, I'm sorry, 20 years earlier, Marcus Salzman wrote a English translation of the Megillat Achimatz, uh, which is not perfect. If you understand the Hebrew, you'll, you'll understand how the translation isn't really perfect. He misses some of the nuances of the Hebrew and some of the nuances of the rhyme. However, it is a very useful translation if anybody's looking for it. You could search the, the Marcus Salzman 
uh, translation of Megillah Zachimatz. And why is it really worth a read? Because it's so much fun. It's really one of the most fun stories you can read. It goes story after story about great sage after great sage, about miracle workings after another miracle. Unbelievable, unbelievable stories. It's lively, he's captivating, his rhyming prose is not always perfect in, in, in its meter because it doesn't really have a, a meter in, the, in this rhyme, but he has these fantastical stories which are, are, are really, really fun. They're possibly sometimes a little naive because he's so, uh, he's so tamim that he believes every detail of these stories as they were said, but the, um, the information is incredible. It, I should note here that he's not a historian and he's not trying to be a historian and be accurate. He's much more of a storyteller, and he's much more of a biographer. He wants to tell the story of his family, and he's an excellent, excellent storyteller. So just as an example, I want to bring for you one story that he gives, which will shed light on one of the, the great poets of early Italy, whose name was Silano. Now, the, the Megillat Achimatz begins speaking about the first Achimatz, and a whole, it gives a whole magical story about the first Achimatz and, and, and Rabbi Aaron Abu Aaron. And then it speaks about Rabbi uh, Abu Aharon, and then I believe it goes on to uh, Rabbi Shefatia, Rabbi Amitai, Rabbi Amitai, Rabbi Shefatia, and, and then Rabbi Shefatia's son Amitai. So Amitai, Shefatia, Amitai, right? Three different uh, generations. Now, I'll just mention to you the story outside here because it's just so, so interesting. There's this story of a it's hard, it's hard to almost say. There was a story of uh, this famous sage named Abu Haron. He was probably Abu Haron, the son of, of um, Rabbi Shmuel, the Reish Galuta. Uh, he came from all the way from Bavel to Italy, and he taught Torah in Italy. He was a mystical, Kabbalistic figure, very, very interesting figure. And it says a lot of uh, magical stories about him. And one of them is that he was sitting in shul. He came to visit... I believe it was Benevento, or I don't remember what city. And he came, he came to visit the city, and it was Shabbat night. And up comes a young man to, to, say, to, to, to pray Arvit on Shabbat night. And he sings Baruch Hu Hashem Mavorach very beautifully. But Rabbi, but Rabbi Abu Aron notices that he swallowed the name Hashem. He doesn't say the name Hashem. And he skipped it. And Rabbi Abu Aron uh, yells at him, stop, don't, uh, don't continue. Uh, he understood, says the poem, that this young lad could not have said the Shem Hashem because he was in fact dead. And a dead person is not allowed to say the same Shem Hashem. And he said, you must not be one of us. Who are you? Why do you exist? And um, what are you doing trying to, to, to pray in, in public? So he says, I promise... I've never told anybody this, but if, you, if you're willing to accept my sins for what I have done, I'll tell you my story. So the Kahal accepted, and he tells them his story, that many years earlier, the father of this family, Achimatz, um, used to go to Eretz Yisrael three times a year, in Eretz Yisrael, like some sort of pilgrimage post-Hurban. And he would bring a donation every year, and he was a rabbi, and bring a, he would bring a donation to the Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. And what happened was that one day he came to the mother of this boy and he said, can I have this boy as my, can I hire him as my servant so that when we go to Eretz Yisrael, I'll have somebody to attend with me and to help me out. And I promise I'll bring him back. And she said, okay. And uh, he, went, he went with him to Eretz Yisrael, sorry, to Yushalayim. And when he's in Yushalayim, they have this meal with all the Rabbanim of the Yeshiva. 
and they began to sing Zmirot. And they asked, why don't you let your servant, this boy, also sing Zmirot? He has a beautiful voice, and he's saying. And then one of the Kabbalistic masters, so to speak, one of the, the, the holy people in the group, he heard the boy singing, and he began crying. And they asked him, why are you crying? And he said, this boy, he's going to die, and he's not going to be able to return to his mother. For some reason, Hashem just, just decreed that this young man is going to die. And Rabbi Achimatz was distraught. He said, I promised his mother, what am I going to do? So the assembly got together and they wrote the Shem Hashem on his, somewhere on his skin, a special like amulet, which prevented him from dying. And he returned to his mother. And he said, centuries later, I'm still alive. I've been wandering from country to country, uh, hiding my identity because um, basically I'm stuck among the living with this amulet. And I preferred it, but now I was ashamed to tell people my secret. But if you're willing to accept my sin, then I'll show you where the, where the inscription is. He showed them where the inscription was. They ripped it off his skin, and he turned to dust and disappeared. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, like kind of a real fantasy story, so to speak. It's impossible to know how many details of that are true, but it's an unbelievable story. And if you read it in the Hebrew, you'll understand why, why I say, speak of it with a, a drop of skepticism, just because of the, the way it's rhymed and the way the story goes. It's really, really fun. But if we go here, let me, let me just open the page here. This is Hebrew Books, document 38867, if anyone's interested. He says the story of a certain poet named Silano, and we're going to look at his poem in a moment. This is the story that happens, that happened to the story of Silano, and it stands out simply because it's just so funny. It's, it's literally a prank story, and it goes something like this. The, the, I'm sharing my screen now, now for whoever, uh, whoever wants to see. The minhag was, the custom was, that there would be a dignitary from Eretz Yisrael who would often travel to Sicily or would travel to Italy to collect money for the shivot in Eretz Yisrael. We saw two weeks ago Shmuel Hashlishi was one of those dignitaries who was um, very well known and was respected and he would travel to collect money in these towns. So here we have a story of here, we have the story of a certain incident where a rabbi visited the town of Venosa and, and a prank happened to him. Let's, let's just say it that way. So I'll read it in Hebrew just, for, just, just to give you an idea of this poetry. It says, And with the mercy of Hashem, who forgives those who sin, I will tell this following story. Which happened in Venosa. Ish ba me'eretz Yisrael, a man came from the land of Israel. Mevin v'yodea b'torat kel, who know who was great in Torah. Maskil be'amon sha'ashuim v'shahayamim v'shavuim. Right, a person who is uh, well versed in the Torah, and he was there to stay for a few days and a few weeks. V'haya oseh b'chol Shabbat rasha. Every week, this rabbi would give a Shabbat rasha. B'toch ha'kneset be'am Hashem l'dorsha. In the in the synagogue, uh, okay, let's forget the rest of the poem. Playing. So the Chacham would speak and Rabbi Silano would, would, would explain, right? He was like the, he was a hired scribe or a hired poet, one of the hired rabbis of the, of the community. Uh, and it was typical in those times that the rabbi would speak and then somebody else would, would bellow out louder with a clearer voice and a clearer explanation of what the rabbi meant. And one of these days, one of these Arab Shabbats, what happened was that Arab Shabbat, many people came from the towns to hear the drashah. So they came into the town, they came from the suburbs to spend time in Venosa. 
מן הכפרים על מזיזות לעלות, ועשו מריבה אנשים ביניהם, ותסנה הנשים בבתיהם, ובעצים הארוכים אשר התנו מחקקים, ומן האש מחורכים. So basically, a fight broke out in the town square, and the men came out, the women came out, they took their pitchforks, they took their, their oven forks, בהם היו הנשים הנשים הקים, and men and women were fighting with pitchforks. רבי סילנו שגג וטעה. Okay, so basically a fight happened. Now the whole situation was really tense in the, in the community. So Rabbi Salano Shagag Vita'a, he, uh, he, he uh, you know, he's trying to say he made a mistake. He, uh, he had a Yetzahara to kind of play a joke. So basically, Rabbi Silano's job as being a, a, an employee of the community was also to write out any midrash or any pasuk that the Chacham was going to be Doresh that week so he could read from some papers. And Rabbi Silano took out uh, the papers and he changed a little bit of what the rabbi was going to read. So the rabbi was going to read a certain pasuk or a certain midrash and he changed it for fun. And what did he write? He wrote what happened in the story. So basically, some researchers suspect that he was going to, the, 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 the Rav, whoever he was, was going to say this, um, this Pasuk in, in, um, in Shemot, that he was going to be Mepharesh, this Pasuk, where it says in the Midrash that the men and women came out be'arbuvia, that they came out uh, mixed up. The, it's basically a sin that they, they came out too hurried together. So the Midrash in, in, in Barabba says that they all came uh, together. I'm trying to find the actual language of the Midrash. But, but long story short, he parodied the Midrash and he wrote this. So the rabbi starts to read and in his Tmimut, he reads, he basically reads a rhymed verse uh, making fun of the entire community that they all, that, that they, they came out with pitchforks and everybody burst out laughing. They thought it was the funniest thing. Rabbi Salano, Blatzon, Vatzachak, Lekola Yishim, Heshi, Vatzachak, and everybody in Rabbi Silano started laughing. Shimu Sheharav Doresh Lachem, Hamrivashet, Molt, Nasatahabe, Nechem. The rabbi speaking about our, our, our uh, accidentally speaking about our fight yesterday. Kishiku Anashim, Anashim, Vihiku Matzeh, Hatanorim, Vivrichum, and Mikolavrim. Hechacham Kira'ah Vehevin, right? So the, the wise man, the, the rabbi who was visiting, when he understood what he had done, that, that a practical joke had been played on him, this Karkimu Panavihilbin, he was very embarrassed that the whole joke happened at his expense. And he went to the rabbis, in, meaning when he returned to Eretz Yisrael, and he returned to the other rabbis in Eretz Yisrael who were called Chavirim, Asher Bishivas Tevurim, who were in charge of the Yeshiva, and they were all very upset. And they put Rabbi Silano in Cherem. So now Rabbi Silano is in Cherem. So what's, what's going to happen? So apparently, if we, I, I don't think we have time, but if we read here the rest of the, of the poem, Rabbi Achimatz traveled with Rabbi um, Silano to Eretz Yisrael to petition uh, the rabbis in the yeshiva to remove, 
to remove the cherem. So for a few years he was in cherem, but what happened was as follows. Rabbi Silano had written a poem called a, a slicha, really not a poem, a piyut, which was a slicha called Allah Alovechachesh. Uh, and it's a very beautiful piyut. Let me just find, let me see what page we're on here, 14. Okay, so let me go all the way down here. I'll show you the piyut of Rabbi Silano. It's a beautiful slicha. I don't think it's still said today, but um, here we go. Meaning, I've sworn and I lied and I stole and, and I had superstition. Um, uh, we still haven't done teshuva. But there's this part of his poem where it says, Meaning that the early ones, they were Zoha. And they merited great reward, but the later people, um, the, the the those who were treacherous, um, they destroyed uh, the their 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 fortunes, their castles. So this was a part of his poem, Zahu Kadmonim. So Rabbi Silano, having been a poet or really a cantor, he was, he was a synagogue employee. For him, he was uh, invited to 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 pray in Eretz Yisrael in the yeshiva, and they didn't know who he was. And he replaced the word Zahu Kadmonim with Zahu Rabbanim, and he replaced the words Garmu Chamanim with Garmu Haminim, right? So basically praising the rabbis and detracting from the Karaim. And the rabbis there were very impressed with this, uh, with this piyut that he, had, uh, that he had written, and they asked, who is this person? And Rabbi Achimatz told them, this person is Rabbi Silano, who you put in Cherem, and they were so impressed that they released him from his Cherem. So now there's a lot of things we learn about this story, from this story. There are many, many more fascinating stories in the Megillat Achimatz. But one of the things we learn from this story, to return to our to- main topic of poetry, is that much evidence from Megillat Achimatz teaches us that the poets w- did not serve the same functions as they did in other areas of the world. For example, in, 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 in Egypt, many of the Paitanim were rabbis who were already prestigious, and were simply writing for the benefit of their community. In Spain, you had um, uh, poets who were professional poets, who literally wrote poetry for a living and were hired by patrons, such as Shmuel Hanagid or Chistai ibn Shaprut. They were hired by patrons to be full-time poets as representatives of the, of the Jewish community or as representatives of dignitaries, and that was their full-time job. But in, er- in Eretz Yisrael and in Italy, the job of the poet was different. The job of the poet was really a synagogue employee. And they were people who were hired by the kihilah, not only to be a cantor, and not only to be a chazan, and to lead the community, but they were also usually dignified people and chachamim, who were trusted by the community to be their chazan and to also invent piyutim for every occasion. This is much of what is very much uh, available to us in the Megillat Achimatz. So now, Silano was one of those who wrote some piyutim. I don't believe many of them uh, remained in, uh, in, in the Ashkenazic liturgy. But, let me just admit somebody, give me a second. But we have a history of the Achimatz family, and, not every, uh, and we, from this we know of many paitanim that were pretty important to the Ashkenazic liturgy throughout uh, the, the next thousand years. So the main poets that we're going to just we're going to to, to mention uh, of the Ashken, of the Italian poets were uh, Shifatia, 
Amitai ben Shifatia, Amitai the second of right? Shifatia is Shifatia ben Amitai, then Amitai ben Shifatia, who was from Oriya. Uh, Zivadia, who's like an imitator of Amitai. And then we have Eli, Aliyah bar Shemaya from Bari. So let's first discuss their styles. I know we're running a little bit. Okay, we're a little bit short on time. So overall, if one were to describe their poetry, one could say that the poets of, of Italy were far more original than they were innovative. Meaning that they might have, they, they might have not invented any completely new categories of piyut, but they were very, very original. They had their own style, their own, they, they had their own way of writing, they had their own topics, they had their own simpler, uh, simpler style than, say, a Calyrian poet or a, po uh, a, po a poem or a poem, a piyut from, from Yanai. Yanai and Kalir were very terse, very difficult to understand. They packed in a lot of midrash. But later, later poets didn't want to do that. They wanted their Hebrew to be simpler, more understandable to the masses. And they used much less frequently allusions to the midrash or allusions to things that would be difficult for lay people to understand. Now, they still used sometimes older structures like a yotzer or like a kedushta, but they wouldn't necessarily keep every strict rule. It doesn't seem that they, that, that they were as rigid about these rules as other people were. They considered uh, changing things instead of doing a quatrain, they do a terset instead of doing a refrain here, you do a refrain there. They were original. They didn't feel bound to the very much. They didn't feel very bound to the strict structure and the strict style of the generations before them in Eretz Yisrael. Interestingly, sometimes they would also use Latin words or Greek words in their poetry, which weren't found anywhere else. And we have two examples of them writing uh, poetry that is almost half secular. In one case, we have um, Amitai writing a vikuach ben ha-gefen, ha, ha I think ben ha-ilan ha-gefen, between the vine and the tree. A, a, a dispute between the vine and the tree about who is better. It's not clear if he's practicing his poetry or if it's all mishalim and a metaphor, but the vine argues with the tree about which one is better for mankind. And they all both bring proofs from Chazal about which one is better for mankind. Another poem is from Shabtai Donalo. Shabtai Donalo was not actually one of, uh, one of this school. He was an Italian scholar who was a probably trained in Torah, but he migrated north in order to become a physician. And he is known for much, many of his works on medicine and on astrology. He wrote something the Rashi refers to called the Sefer Hamazalot, also the Chakemoni. And um, he wrote it, and he wrote, I think the Chakemoni was written in Hebrew, actually. And he's known as a scholar of, of, of that time. It's not clear if he's known as a rabbinic scholar, but he was clearly a rabbi and also a scholar of that era. And in the beginning of his Sefer Chakemoni, he writes an introduction, which is a poem. And the poem is literally a copyright poem. It's a fascinating thing. He says, he, he's, he encodes his name into the poem so that nobody could forge and say that they wrote this book and they were the author of this book because his name is encoded into the first poem of the book. And it says in, it, it says in the poem that, you know, uh, blessed should be he who copies my name uh, properly, and cursed should be whoever uh, forges or, or tries to plagiarize my work. So it's, a, it's kind of like a half-secular poem to his introduction to the Sefer HaKamoni. Beautiful. 
Now, the most prolific of all the Italian poets is for sure Amitai, Amitai II. Amitai ben Shafatia wrote at least 40 piyutim that we know of. Many of the piyutim in general of, the, of these paitanim fall into two camps. Either they're yotzrot or they're selichot. Amitai wrote many, many yotzrot that we can see. He wrote one kiddushta that we could see. And if anybody's interested in looking at the, the, the poetry of, of um, early Italy, I believe it was Chaim Sherman in the 60s. Was it the 60s? Give me a second to just check that. Um, he wrote a sefer called Mifrar Hashirah Ha'evrit Italia. It's available also in Hebrew books. Um, you can find it there. I think it's number, I don't have the number in front of me. Nor do I have the date. 1934. So he wrote a collection of all of the uh, piyutim that we have from early Italy. A very beautiful collection. So what we have from Amitai, who is... Amitai is a special figure, let's put it that way. Because Amitai, many poets, when they write, you'll frequently see them writing... Um, many poems of a similar type over and over, right? They'll, they'll, they'll write a Yotzer for this Shabbat, a Yotzer for that Shabbat. A lot of their work becomes somewhat repetitive. Every poem that we have from Amitai is completely original. He always has a re- uh, an original thought, an original style, an original form, an original content. It's really unbelievable what an original poet he was. He does use earlier styles. He's using the Hebrew and the rhyme and the syllabic meter of Eretz Yisrael, but he is not constrained by that, and it's not very difficult for him to write poetry. It's clearly easy for him to write poetry, which is clearly his own, whether it's personal poetry or whether it's religious poetry. It's always clearly his. We have a, one kedushta from him, one Shmona Esrei, so to speak, uh, for anyone who's familiar, who's been following till now, one kedushta from him that was written for his sister's wedding. And this poem was actually well-known to scholars before the discovery of the Megillat Achimatz, but it was later understood from the Megillat Achimatz that he wrote this, this Kedushta for his sister's wedding. And it's a brilliant um, poem where he discusses the, the first wedding of, Ad, of Adam and Chavan, how the angels sing. It's very popular for the Chachmei Italia and the Chachmei Eretz Yisrael to be more concerned with angelology than, than the Sephirotic uh, Kabbalistic system of, of the East. But that, that's a discussion for another time. And for similar reasons, you'll see that that Kiddushta is not, is not a typical Kiddushta where, us, where you have Pesukim of the, that week's parasha because it's not based on that week's parasha. It's based on the wedding. So there's no like, there's, it's not a typical Kiddushta. It's a very, very original piece. Now, in general, these Paitanim were more, including Amitai, were more fascinated with Types of poems called the Gufayotzer, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the Gufayotzer, the Zulat, and the Ofan. So, as I've mentioned earlier, the Yotzer, when we call a proper Yotzer in technical terminology in the world of Piyot, that means a set of Piyotim, seven or eight Piyotim that were written for the Bracha of Yotzer R. And there are different uh, poems, seven or eight different poems written within a Yotzer. They all have different names. The Spanish poets, were most fascinated with writing poem, poems for the Ahava poems and for the Mi'ora poems, the poems that discuss the Orot, right, the, the luminaries in the sky that Hashem created, which is very philosophical, and the Spanish poets loved the philosophy of, of the astrology and the, and the astronomy, so to speak, and also the, 
the Ahava, which has philosophical leanings towards the love of Hashem towards Klai Yisrael, and, and also there's a, there's a, a form of, of poetic beauty in, in writing about the Ahava of Yisrael to Hashem and Hashem to Yisrael. So therefore, the Spanish poets were very obsessed with the Ahava and the Meora, but the Italian poets were much more, obs- were much more fascinated with the Gufayotzer and the Zulat, which were much more longer poems because that gave them more room to show their originality. And furthermore, they love the Ofan because the Ofan is where it speaks about the, <laughs> where it speaks about all of the uh, the Malachim and the, Mal- and the Malachi Hasharet, and therefore, because that was their area of expertise, the Maaseh Markava and, and how the, the angels say Kadosh, this is one area where they embellished a lot. So that's where you're going to find a lot of Ofanim. If you open Chaim Sherman's Mefchar Shirav Apiut, you will find many Ofanim from these Paitanim. Now, also, I should make a mention about their refrains. They don't seem to have the same style of having a chorus in the way that, uh, or like perhaps Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur or the later the later schools of poetry assume that there is going to be a professional choir in the in the shul. But it seems that from their poetry, they would in, instead put simple refrains at the end of each stanza because they wanted to involve the kahal. The kahal themselves were going to be the choir. And they would repeat things like Hashem Malech or Kadosh Kadosh Kadosh. So as part as part of the piyut. So they had their own style of doing this. Now I just wanted to mention for anybody who's uh, uh, who's familiar with the Ashkenaz Machzor, some of the piyutim which uh, still affect you today. Now these are longer piyutim which survived in the Ashkenaz Machzor for Yom Kippur and, and the Machzor for Rosh Hashanah. And this is very demonstrative of the Selichot genre that these Paitanim were known for. Many of their Selichot are quite well written because these poets themselves lived through some terrible times. And they had the first-hand experience to write about the Gzerot to Klai Yisrael and the suffering of Klai Yisrael and salvation for Klai Yisrael. So many of their Selichot are clearly written with first-person grief, and they're, they can be really beautiful. Now, as I said, there was a, let me, let me show you, let me share my screen here for a second. If you look at the Mach Yom Kippur in Tefilat Ni'ilah, there's a section of Tefilat Ni'ilah among the uh, Ashkenazim known as Kedushat Hayom, right? Tefilat Ni'ilah, Kedushat Hayom. In Kedushat Hayom, there is a collection of piyutim. All of these piyutim here that you see, right? This is not one long piyut. Zichor Brit Avraham, Goel Chazak, Hayar Kadesh. These are the first stanzas of old, of, of longer piyutim, of which the only, only the first stanza survived. So Enkat Misaladecha, that is a composition of Silano. Yisrael Nosha, um, uh, Bahashem is a, is a, what's he called? Is a, is a composition of Shifatya. Uh, which is a few lines down here, would be is a composition of Amitai. If you look in, I believe it's, hold up, can I find it? Adon B'Shiftacha, this is Eliyah Bar Shmaya. And if you look in Arab Yom Kippur, you'll have Adon Din Im Yudutak, this is a composition of Zivadia. So till today, although these names weren't clearly known who they were or what they did, these poets did have a long-lasting impact on Ashkenaz liturgy. But just for a moment, I want to show you, 
the actual poems themselves in the Sefer of Chaim Sherman, just so you can get an idea. So here we are on the screen. We'll have Yisrael Noshe Ba'ashem Tishrat Olamim, Gam Hayomi Va'ashumi Picha Shochin Meromim Ki'ata Rav Slichot Ubal Rachamim. But it doesn't end there as it does in the Ashkenaz Masorim today. Well, not all of them, but many of them end over there. You also have Sharecha Himdov, Kim Kanim Vidalim. It sticks to the same rhyme. So you see how it ends with the same refrain every single time. That's, that's, a, that's a poem, a slicha from Rabbi Shifatia. Here we have one from Amitaya, Fafuni, Ma'imad Nafesh, Avticha Avat Kulula. This is a Zulat, and we could go on and on and on here. Um, this is Shabtai Donalo. As I mentioned, this is his copyright poem. So, Shalom Rav Mipi Kel Shakai Brachot Vinachamot Tavot Ad Blidai, like hello, basically. And then, Tavon Alakol Mi Sheyachtov Zesefer Limudai, right? There should be Brachot whoever writes my Sefer uh, in my name, Yoshieni Kel Imichtveo B'Shem Shabbatai. How dare uh, God help me if anybody writes it? In the, uh, sorry, God should help those who write in the name of Shabtai Donolo, etc., etc. That's that's the the Shabtai Donolo poem, um, and. Right, so let me go a little further here. We have Donalo, and after that we'll have Klonimos Bar Moshe. Okay, beautiful. So that is so much for these early Southern poets. If anybody is interested, and I, I'm sure that after reading, uh, hearing about Megillat HaChimatz, you might be, <laughs> you might be interested in reading more. The Megillat HaChimatz is terrific and full of amazing, amazing stories of Nisim and Iflaot. If anybody wants to read it, uh, Benjamin Klar on Hebrew Books has uh, his edition of, of Megillat HaChimatz. If you want to find um, the English version on the HathiTrust.org, H-A-T-H-I-T-R-U-S-T.org, you will find the Chronicle of Ahimaaz, A-H-I-M-A-A-Z, by Marcus Salzman with a beautiful, with a nice translation and a huge historical introduction. If anybody's interested in all of these uh, amazing stories of these early poets, so that concludes the Southern Poets of Italy. Next week, I believe we are going to move north to Lucha um, and, and look at the Colonimus family and the other scholars who not only wrote poetry, but also were the first important rabbinic migrants into Ashkenaz, who really and seriously built Ashkenaz Jewry as we know it today. So thank you, everybody, for your time and attention. I hope this was interesting enough. And Bezrat Hashem, next week we'll continue with more of this poetic history.